The Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Flute of Milk, After the Sea, by John Banville. Inside the dairy, washed so white it approaches blue, muslin-draped pans of milk dream in their silence, and two still milk churns, sentries in flat hats, burn with white rosettes, light held from the sun. I remember the butter churn, the handle I never turned, Memory prefers to hold things still, but the past, present and future are a long flute of milk. I'm washing my hands. A spot on the curve of the hand basin streams out like a nebula. I remember washing her hair, pouring water from a jug. The sluice fell on the crown of her head. Beads broke in a silver string like the bracelet around her wrist that diadem of our night swim. The water flowed and flowed over our arms, undulations of black satin. She stands unshadowed now. In milky light, her face seems almost featureless, as if the profile of a coin. Be anyone you like, she said, but who, if not ourselves, are we? Is a rose red in the dark? I wash some colour here, Scumble a detail there. Her portrait will never be done. You're on Community Radio 3CR. This is the Spoken Word Program, and I am Santo Katsati. And to open our program today, we heard the title poem from Susan Feely's new book of poetry, Flute of Milk, read by the poet herself. Susan Feely is my guest on the program today. Welcome to 3CR, Susan. Thank you for having me, Santo. You bet. Um, so, this new book, Flute of Milk, this is Susan's first collection of poems. It's published by UWA Publishing, that is to say, University of Western Australia. I've been following Susan's work for almost 10 years now, and I can say this book has been a long time coming, and I know exactly why, because Susan is a very, very careful artist, someone who thinks in very great detail, who reflects over and over, and who refines in the process. Now, uh, it's not as if she's just some kind of procrastinating dreamer who never produces anything because she has been published many times in journals, in anthologies in Australia and the US. But uh, now we, we finally have a compact and yet intensely packed book of poetry. It's 76 pages long, so it's not slender by any means. And uh, just to give listeners a bit of an idea of what's coming up over the next half hour, the poems interrogate love, loss, gender and aesthetics. So we'll be hearing plenty more of these poems and we'll be talking about some of these issues as well, so I don't need to give the game away any further. But just before we hear another poem, I can't resist quoting the testimonial by Robert Adamson on the back cover. This is a remarkable book, delicate, tough, sensual, spiked with ideas and lines that create the deep music of real poetry. Well, that's a bit of a poem in itself, isn't it? And I like the way that some reviewers of poetry are so poetic themselves in their actual reviews of someone else's work. In fact, uh, Robert Adamson writes a more extended introduction to the book right there on page one. 
it's a very lovely way into the book. But anyway, we have the poet here in the studio, so um, all right then, another poem uh, read by the poet herself from Susan Feely's Flute of Milk. Bringing you home. You've stained my sleep again, and your tiny clothes tangle their limbs in my washing machine. So many headless bodies, and now your wriggly purple flesh, two white straps on a new white nappy, wet, 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 urine soaks it and you and me before I can hook your spider legs back into their flowered net. Dark silk clings to your skinny neck, yet no spider ever lifted sounds like this. Your eyes are marbles in a slow slot machine, and there you've scratched your face again. It's time to snare those starfish hands, but God, how to blunt such silver flecks. Right then, well Susan, um, with this new book of yours, what actually were you trying to achieve in putting it together? Well, I guess, Santo, I was after a cohesive collection because they are the kind of collections that I like to read the most. So, um, it de- because I, I must say I've read through it quite a few times now and I really do feel that like the sequence of events is a very, very important aspect of this book. Yes, I guess I was after creating a conversation between the poems that was a kind of a non-linear narrative that did interrogate the four themes, love, loss, aesthetics and gender. Well, I will ask about that in a second. I just wanted to say, though, one one of the things I really like about this book, so I I really recommend it to anyone who wants to go out and buy it, is as you read through the poems from beginning to end, you see that certain words or certain references sort of um, come back in the next poem or maybe a couple of poems ahead, uh, and then something that's been left behind gets replaced by something else, and that seems to be... I wouldn't call it a theme or anything, but it just seems to be a bit of a motive. And is is that quite deliberate, the way that you've done that? Well, flow is certainly central to the idea of this collection. And I think that's one of the reasons why the title, Flute of Milk, and the title poem uh, is so central. I, I mean, I see it as a kind of umbrella poem, which, of course, by its very nature has flow. And so, yes, I did want recurring um, motifs like blue and like milk, and bees in the second part to, um, I guess, flow through the collection. It's a very, very strong aspect, uh, but without being dominating or, or hard in any way. It's, it's a quite a gentle way of doing it. Well, look, we, we did mention the uh, the four elements. I don't know if you really want to like talk about each one individually or, or maybe uh, explain why it is that uh, those, those four things, love, loss, gender and aesthetics um, mean so much to you and what you're trying to say about them? Well, it's hard to do that in a limited period <laughs> of time, Santo. I guess in keeping with the idea of flow, I guess what I would say is I think there are relationships between those four themes that are inherent in the collection. So, for example, there are love poems that involve the absence of a love person There are love poems that involve a child where inherently it deals with the life cycle that involves a separation, which is a kind of loss. And there are other poems where I am speaking about an artefact that was made in the context of the loss of the maker's wife 
Southern Ice Porcelain is one of those poems. So I guess I'm interested in the relationship between aesthetics and loss and aesthetics and love in some ways. That's actually a really fantastic answer I'm, you know, in such a short amount of time. Um, and we will talk about gender later on anyway, but that's, that's really great. Let's, let's go on to uh, another poem then. Seeing the Pregnant Woman at Pompeii. You are there on the shelf with the other artefacts, a series of urns smooth as sculpted breasts, and beside you a shallow bowl like a shell for a Venus rising. But there is no Venus here, nor pearls, only a pity of coins to hasten you to the truly dead. You huddle with your knees up, hiding what you cannot protect, your arms raised to a face I cannot see, abject, like the beggar in a city street beside his bowl and the unnecessary sign, please help me. The pain of stone clings to you, rags your edges, refuses comfort. Lake Mungo. He wants to take her where birds grew legs long as rodeos and a reimagined giant wombat tends to disappoint. He wants to drive her to a desert where they ghosted her in ochre, buried her standing upright by a milky singing lake. He wants to walk with her along a curve of shattered moon where human memory unmade her long ago. He wants to wake where sand blows yesterday from her face, where there is nothing but the terror of his faith. You are hearing the voice and poetry of Susan Feely on 3CR Spoken Word. Now, Susan, many, many years ago in a casual conversation, you said to me that you thought that poetry should be, quote-unquote, plain speaking. Uh, And I always remembered that, uh, although I'm not sure if that's how I would describe your poetry, because it is so complex. And for me, it's it's not so direct. And and I don't mean that as an insult or a criticism in any way at all. I actually mean that more as a praise. But it does pose the question, how comprehensible should poetry be? Like, um, is it not really poetry if it's just merely plain speaking, if it's just something that sounds like ordinary conversation that can be understood straight away? Or, um, to look at things from the opposite side, maybe it really is poetry if it requires many 
readings and a long long contemplation over and over again. So I don't know what you think about that. Well, I have to say, Santo, I don't recall that exact conversation, but I do very clearly uh, recall that my early influences were poets that I still greatly admire, and they were poets who used the everyday language uh, and you don't need to go and look up words in a dictionary to understand the poem. So they would be poets like Seamus Heaney, Robert Frost. And I also have always greatly admired the intimate address that I, I sense in John Donne's work where there's very much a sense of the poet communicating with another person. So I certainly see communication in the poem as part of what I'm about. So... I guess I'd say that I aspire to write poetry like those early influences, but that doesn't mean that those poets are easily comprehensible either. I mean, I think even though the language itself might be plain, spoken in some sense, there's rhythm, there's musicality, and there's complexity in what's said, so that on reread, um, uh, I guess it kind of unfolds new meanings and it bears... Uh, I guess rereading because it is language that's under pressure. It's the best words in the best order. I think that's actually um, sorted it all out for me really well because, um, as you say, you know you don't want to send people to the dictionary, and and the the words you choose are very very clear. Um, but there's got to be something that language under pressure that you just said a moment ago. That there's got to be something in poetry that that does extend language that makes it more than just the ordinary communication. It is communicating. I think it is communicating, but at a much more profound level. Um, so I think I can't really think of anything more to say about that because I think, I think we've ended up being in agreement there when, when it looked as though we're coming from quite opposite sides. Look, um, I think I'd just like you to uh, read one of my highlights from the book, uh, the poem that closes the book. It's inspired by a French feminist author whose philosophy I've admired for a very long time. So, look, I'll just let you read the poem first and then we can talk about the ideas behind it afterwards. Writing with the left hand. There's an epigraph to this poem from Alain Sixou's essay, Coming to Writing. You've lost the hand that writes. Learn to write with the other hand. Moles channel under my skin. If they break the surface, what then? A rash, a plague. Hands could atrophy waiting for that mute continent. Then a morbidity of doctors. I could be bandaged as a mummy inside a polished tree. And what hands can understand inside such white, such practised bindings? What rhythm invokes restriction? What timbre its keynote? Yes, best to cut one off. Right is the left hand. Now is the left hand and blood on the table. Red on white holds no shadow. I will use the ink from my dead hand. Right then, Susan. Well, um, who is Hélène Sixou? Uh, why are you so um, inspired by her? Well, I use the epigraph from Hélène Sixou because at the time I was reading some of her work. I was also reading some other strong women writers like Vicky Fever, uh, who wrote The Handless Maiden, and she was writing poems about menstruation, she was writing poems in the voice of murderous women. 
So I think that a number of strong women writers influenced this poem at that time. I guess it felt important to claim the irrational parts of myself to write from uh, a position of strong feeling. And when I did that in this particular poem, I found that it did become a poem very much connected with the body self. So I guess it was a strange experience of reading her work and then finding afterwards, thinking about it, because I wrote wrote and thought very intuitively at the time I was generating the poem, that the associative connections seemed to very much connect with Ellen Sixu's idea of the body self and connecting that.
3CR Spoken Word is being presented today by Santo Cazzati and I'm in the studio with my guest today, Susan Feely, whose new book of poetry, Flute of Milk, we are featuring on today's programme. If you're wondering about that piano music, by the way, it was Noctuel, the first of Maurice Ravel's Miroir, and the recording I took it from is called Ravel Revealed. Uh, And the reason it's called that is because the utterly brilliant pianist that we heard there, Gwendolyn Mock, recorded that on an Erard piano of the late 19th century, similar to the one Ravel had, which uh, really gives insights into the textures and colours that the composer had in mind and indeed in ear. But now back to the real focus of our program today, Susan Feely. Metamorphosis in memory of Franz Kafka, 1883-1924. Cathedral bird, cordor, jackador, dark-plumaged passerine bird, a jackdaw is Kafka in Czech. Genus of crows and ravens, it calls in a metallic chack chack. Cathedral bird, cordor, jackador. Jackdaws are harbingers of rain. Their underwings are wire grey. And Kafka means jackdaw in Czech. His sisters Ellie, Valley and Otla died in 41, 2 and 3. Cathedral bird, cordor, jackador. Greeks tell that a jackdaw falls, seeking his kin in a dish of oil. A jackdaw is Kafka in Czech. His beak and throat are clattering. He calls in a metallic chack chack. Cathedral bird, cordor, jackador. A jackdaw is Kafka in Czech. Very evocative reading of that poem, Susan. Um, made me think of the sound of poetry. How important is it? for poetry, and specifically the kind we just heard you read there, to be read aloud. Do you think that um, reading a poem aloud is a distraction from the poet's intellectual content uh, or the poems in a structure, or or do you think that reading it aloud enhances what's on the page? Well, Santo, this particular poem is a villanelle, and so by its very form it involves the repetition of lines So I I think that uh, it actually allows the intellectual content of the repeating lines to unpack because there's the opportunity to hear them again. Uh, I certainly like the idea of reading this poem aloud in particular because it allows me to highlight the quality of lament, which I think is echoed by the form because I guess we see repetition in... um, Allergy, we see it in uh, poems that have loss. And I wanted to draw out the sense of lament and loss in this poem by my slow reading. I have actually had people tell me that they see humour in this poem. Now, it's not; it wasn't my intent, but on the other hand, I have to accept that once I let the poem go into the world on the page, it is up to the reader to make of it as they will. But certainly, with the opportunity to read it, Uh, the colour that I bring to it with my voice and my pace allows me to amplify the intended qualities of lament that I see as key to this poem. Absolutely. It just seems like the the discourse of uh, the spoken voice 
uh, as opposed to or as complementary to what's on the page um, can can you know can make people uh, well you can make the thing sound humorous by adopting a completely different rhythm and a completely different tone of voice and, and maybe maybe there is the possibility of humor to be read into the poem on the page but clearly that's not what you intended and and you have the opportunity by reading it aloud to stamp a bit more of your emotional intent in it. That's right. I guess it does then slant the the interpretation of the poem, so it is skewing how the listener will receive the poem, which I guess arguably is a downside because it means that the listener uh, is sort of being guided by myself and my voice and not being completely free to interpret it as they wish. This is Spoken Word on 3CR, and we are coming to the end of this program. Our guest has been Susan Feely, whose new book, Flute of Milk, was launched recently, and I've enjoyed getting Susan to read excerpts from this book. Thank you for that. Thank you for the opportunity, Santo. It's been great. And as they say, the book is available in all good bookshops, so don't miss it. To finish off, Susan, one last poem. The Hope Stone. They rise from the stone, four letters like thin galaxies across its dark-knit dome, as if a giant raked up the stars, compacted them into gritty clay, then coiled and strung out hope across a stolid sky. The word contests the stone, yet the letter E is a face in profile, screaming, and the O is opening. And the night seems small, like an old boot scuffed at the toe, as if there could be another one. Just a few community announcements. There are many live poetry gigs that happen in Melbourne. A lot of them have open mics if you'd like to try your hand at sharing your work with others, or you can just go to listen. Check out the website melbournespokenword.com to find out more about the scene. That's all lowercase, all one word run together, melbournespokenword.com. 3CR Spoken Word is on every Thursday morning from 9 to 9.30. It's uh, 8.55 on the AM dial, and it's also on the web at www.3cr.org.au, and you can also catch us uh, via our podcasts. Until next time, this is Santo Cazzati signing off and shutting down. Mm -hmm.